Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. The cavalry are coming, but rather than knights in shining armour wielding swords, it's GPs in scrubs and a box of blue needles. Yes, COVID vaccinations are happening, and in the UK, GPs and practice nurses and the rest of the primary care team have taken up the challenge to deliver them. But how do you vaccinate over a thousand people in three days and respond to the myriad of questions from patients, many of whom aren't sure if they want to get one at all? On today's episode, we hear what it's been like so far for GP Mark Porter, get answers about the second dose and vaccine escape from the director of the Oxford Vaccine Group, Andrew Pollard, and we talk to Deep Breathing's favourite epidemiologist, and as we've learned over the last year, there are plenty to choose from, Julia Marcus, for some lessons we can learn from HIV prevention to ensure equitable COVID vaccination. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And as usual, I'm joined by Jenny and Navjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And hi, Navjoy. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada, head of education at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. So we've got, um, I'm really excited about today's episode. We've got some great guests today. I think three kind of star guests i'd say you know which um which is great for us um and jenny i was thinking like how this sets us apart as a as a, a gp podcast would you say we're like letterman or you know the oprah winfrey of of gp oh podcasts? man you get your be... us perspective let's be the amber ruffin show no oh, the what <laughs> you know <laughs> you know is the really the average one no you know the really hilarious um show that was a spin-off. I think Amber was a writer for one of the other late night shows and now has her own show. She's great. Ah, okay. That's neat for me to check out later. But um anyway, yeah, so we're gonna get straight on and, and hear from our, our, our guests really and our interviews. So we've got three different takes, three different angles on, on COVID vaccinations. Um and yeah, the first one really is about you know the practical challenges, I suppose, for for in the UK, as I said, um, with the Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine, over a thousand vaccines in three days um, to the over eighties, you know, which is a, a challenging group to get in and vaccinate, all whilst maintaining a kind of COVID-safe environment. Um, does that sound like a easy thing, Navjoit? Would you would you relish that? <laughs> I mean, I think it's incredible how GPs have just, um, you know, just shown this absolute willingness to kind of take this on and uh, and get on and get on with things. And I think that's where primary care really excels is, you know, getting into our communities and and doing what we need to do. So I'm really looking forward to hearing um, about about how uh, some practices have gone about doing this. Yeah. And uh, well, my, my, my practice and our, our primary care network. Um, so. I guess, Jenny, maybe to explain for you, the primary care networks is groups of practices that join together to deliver things at more of a population level, a local population level. Um, totally yesterday, we, we, yeah, for some things, but they've been they've been made up made recently, and um, at times it's it's felt like we've been searching for a for, for a purpose, and uh, now we've got one, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so but yesterday we got given the dates that we're going to start vaccinating from next week, so we're we're really excited about that. Um, and yeah, my idea was to try and find somebody to talk to who's who's already done this uh, to get some really practical tips for us on what 
what to do uh, and how to actually get through that day without uh, you know massive queues of patients or uh, dropping vials everywhere that sort of thing so yeah should we go on to that okay that sounds great and i think as we'll hear today it's really important to have some kind of system or order in place i think what i've heard so many people say is that particularly in the United States, the vaccine rollout has seemed really ad hoc, different institutions taking up different algorithms, frontline workers in some instances not receiving the vaccine, um, whereas people who haven't been in direct patient contact or who've been working remotely have received the vaccine. Um, One of my close friends who's a pediatrician in Brooklyn had to sign up online in order to find a slot and wasn't given time off from her clinical duties in order to be vaccinated. So I think having some kind of order or some kind of system um, would seem really important. So I'm really curious Mm. to hear that interview. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. We've we've got our vaccination priority groups, haven't we, Navjoy? But um, I don't know, does it feel quite ad hoc here as well so far? I mean, I think the the groups themselves are quite clear and the kind Mm. of order seems very logical. But I think within that, that that what I'm hearing is there is there has been some kind of confusion as well. So, for example, category two includes frontline health and social care workers. But within that, you know, you hear anecdotally about kind of uh, people on the front line who have had a harder time um, accessing vaccines than than say um, some like other other members of the healthcare team um, who are perhaps not so frontline. So, I think it has felt ordered and you know the prioritization makes sense to a point but I think within that yeah I would agree that there there could be more clarity mm. perhaps and perhaps some of this is to be expected in the kind of initial phases it's going to take a little bit of time for this to bed in unfortunately this is something that we all want to see happening smoothly from from the get-go um and for you know the sort of equitable nature of it is so important um hopefully that will you know that that will come um in the coming sort of days mm. week and weeks yeah well um so i spoke to a gp that many i guess uk listeners especially will will know um it's mark porter so for for many years he's worked at the bbc as uh, on on the radio 4 program inside health which um which many people will know it's a flagship uh, uh, health program and is also writes for the times um but he was on online on twitter just describing some of his experiences i think they were in the first um wave of practices or pcns delivering the vaccine so yeah i got in touch with him and had a chat with him about i guess some probably more of the practical side of it you know what to do on the day what uh, what learning points he had from uh his experience so far delivering the vaccine I'm Dr. Mark Porter. I'm a GP in South Gloucestershire. I'm part of a network of five practices that have been offering vaccination now for just coming up to three weeks. And I understand you were one of the first um, places to, to be offering the vaccines. Um, can you t- tell us more about what the setup is there and what, what's going on where, where you, you're doing that? We're a slightly unusual practice in that we're in a very rural part in the sort of unfashionable part of Gloucestershire. We have about 40,000 patients spread between five practices in our primary care network. Um, But that's over 600 plus square miles. But we're very fortunate in that we have a a pretty new, almost brand new 
community hospital with a minor injuries unit, the huge car park. And it was clear right from the outset that that was, you know, going to be a great venue for, mm. for getting the, the people through to vaccinate. So we started work on that as, as soon as we realised that we were likely to need that sort of hub. Um, and it's it's proven an excellent an excellent place. Many general practices aren't anywhere near as fortunate, which is one of the reasons why we've got off to such a good start. Yeah. And how many patients then have you been able to vaccinate so far? Well, initially it was, we were inviting in, in just under the 975 um, number of yeah. doses that we were told came with each batch from Pfizer. It wasn't long. In fact, it was the first day of, of working there that we actually worked out we could get six doses from each vial rather than five. I think Pfizer underestimated the margin of error that was required for use in the clinical setting. Mm. So we managed to get six doses. So that's obviously increased it to over a thousand per batch. And we're a bit determined by how often we get our batches, but we're just about to start our fourth. So we've done, I think, 3,326 patients so far with three batches. And that's worked out at roughly three to 350 or maybe 400 per day, depending on what's happening. We often get left with a little bit of leftover at the end because some people don't turn up. We have to have a margin of error. But we've quickly filled up with frontline uh, primary care staff who have come in at short notice to have the vaccine. So I want to ask you really about some of the more practical things for other GPs or just for me. We're we're starting ours in about a week's time and... um, really looking forward to it but obviously it's going to be a long day and, and there's it's something completely new to us what what would be your main tips would you say for other gps well it's it's all about teamwork uh, and perhaps if i can quickly talk through the way that ours works um we're very dependent on a large number of volunteers for starters so we put a call out at the beginning of the process and had over 130 people volunteer to help and they do everything from marshalling in the car park to manning the marquee which we set up in the car park where people go for their 15 minutes observations afterwards Mm. Um, but the actual practicality i mean i didn't really know i turned up there i mean the first thing that you're going to find challenging is making up the vaccine itself Mm. you know we're all used to vaccinating large numbers of people in flu clinics but this is very different it's not a grab and jab type operation you have to make each vial up very carefully um and it's quite daunting when you first do it. You mustn't drop it. You mustn't shake it. Yeah. Uh, if you drop a vial, it has to be discarded. So you basically make, uh, you add uh, 1.8 mils of normal saline um, using one syringe and then using five or six, as we do uh, other syringes, you draw off aliquots of 0.3 and it has to be super precise. Mm. You can't change the needles because obviously there's a bit of vaccine in the needle and that needs to go into the patient. Um, but the actual injection is very similar, slightly different technique um, in that we use something called the Z technique where you basically swipe the skin over the deltoid to one side, put the needle in and then release the um, the skin so that actually there's a sort of oblique pathway in. And the idea of that is it A, stops bleeding, but B, more importantly, stops any of the vaccine coming back out through the needle tract. Wow. But otherwise, it'll be very familiar. I think what, what people find, what you'll find daunting to start with is the preparing of the vaccine. And the way we got around that is we worked in teams of three, one injector, one making up, one passing the syringes, and we just took it in turns because it is a very long day. Okay, so how many people were... Well, how many teams of three did you have to do 300 well, people in a, in a day? We've done two. We've done it two different ways. The yeah. day that I worked on was one of the first days and we were a bit concerned that we were going to have huge queues, which actually 
we didn't in the end. We had yeah. patients coming through every five minutes and we could have gone much quicker than that. Mm. Um, and we used three teams uh, of, of people um, and that worked absolutely brilliantly for us. So I think you could probably get away with two in our case. Yeah. And once we've got the hang of it, you can you can really get a, a move on. But it's all dependent. And the other thing that's very important is that, you know, the people need to have the information leaflets before. Yeah. They need to be questioned on the line in about anaphylaxis and all the other contraindications. And then you ask them again when they come and see you. But you can't sit there having long conversations about the pros and cons of COVID vaccine. Um, yeah, I think that's one. Well, one thing we, we were looking at is you know, how, how, how long should an appointment be? I mean, how much... How much room should we leave for, you know, undressing, you know, just giving the vaccine um, questions and, and information giving? Um, well, yeah. yeah, that's going to be something that, that, that depends on your individual setup. I mean, as I said, our patients are arriving thanks to our marshals and our other admin team. Yeah. They literally arrive. We stand at the threshold of a room with all of the kit behind us. So the vaccine's being prepared behind us. I'm standing literally in the, in the doorway. Most of the patients are standing up if, if they can stand up. And some of them are coming in wheelchairs, obviously the older groups. Yeah. They're already stripped off. They've already got their non-dominant arm hanging out. Um, and then we literally ask them four questions. Um, so, so, you know, are they, well, we don't have to ask them if they're pregnant or breastfeeding in this age group, but are they well? Have they had any COVID symptoms? Have you had any serious anaphylactic reactions? And then the last question, of course, are you happy to have the vaccine today? Um, which we normally follow up with, are you left or right-handed if they haven't got their arm out already? And then in goes the jab. Um, and they're literally then taken by another volunteer who helps them get dressed. So you don't have to do that. Takes them, in our case, out to a marquee in the car park where they remain for 15 minutes. So I think we're probably, they're with us for less than two minutes yeah. each. That's if it goes smoothly. Obviously, you do get some problems. Doctor, I want to ask you about my penicillin allergy or, or, or whatever. So yeah. that does slow the process up. But most people are aware that this is a quick in and out. Otherwise, you won't get through everybody. Yeah. But we, we got yeah. through 330 on my day. We started actually at nine o'clock. The last vaccine was given at five past four. We had a short break mid-morning, a sort of 20-minute lunch break. And there was really never a queue of more than three or four people. Right. Doesn't sound like bad, does it, compared to a normal GP day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the only thing you will notice is, is <laughs> we're spending a lot of time sitting down at the moment. And it's a, it's a long day standing up. It's quite intense. Right. And, you know, asking those same questions all the time. You yeah. do tend to get into automatic automatic pilot, really. But uh, yeah. the other the other thing that I, makes it slightly more enjoyable is some of the reactions of, of the mm. people coming through. I mean, many of them are nonchalant, but uh, most are extremely, extremely grateful. Mm. And uh, we've had a couple of people burst into tears. We've mm. had profuse thanks. We've had people coming with biscuits and cakes you know all the it's 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 quite oh, a touching thing to do that is it's well we're in a very privileged position to be able to yeah to be the one to to give the vaccine aren't we i think yeah and uptake's been good i guess i mean have you any any hesitancy or is that is that well, maybe not so uh, in, in this age group so much no hesitancy that that we've seen but yeah. you know you need to bear in mind as i'm sure you know as you know that in, in this age group they're they're pro the vaccine for a number of reasons a they're a generation that's grown up with vaccines and seen the benefits much more so than younger people b yeah. they don't uh, they're not spending all their time on social media seeing all the conspiracy theories about chips and and all the other things that the vaccine might do or it's going to affect their dna or anything they just want to be protected so yeah. i think as the 
as it goes on and we start to do the younger group, particularly the sort of the group that would have the flu jab normally, so the younger adults with other, with other conditions that mm. make them more susceptible, I think we might get some resistance then. Mm. But then, you know, if they're actually turning up for the vaccine, they're probably a self they're a self selected group anyway. Yeah. And the people yeah. who don't want the vaccine just say no when we ring to offer them the appointment. Yeah. yeah, we're in a bit of a challenge at the moment because we're cancelling so many because of the change to the regime. Yeah. I mean, that's caused a lot of problems, a lot of angst amongst our patients is the change to the regimes, not so much the logistics side, which is our problem. Yeah. But a lot of patients are worried that a delay in the second dose, and you're going to get a lot of this uh, because, you know, your, your cohort coming through are going to be the first who are definitely not going to get a second dose yeah. when they're supposed to at the 21 days or the four weeks, depending on which vaccine they get. And a lot of patients are worried that they're going away half cocked, if you like, that they've got this close, but they're not going to get full protection. Yeah. What do you um, say to that? How do you respond to their concerns? Well, we've tried to, we've, we've put something up on, we're putting something up on our website as, as I speak and through social media and various other outlets. We've tried to get them to read the rationale from the JCVI themselves that mm. look, this is certainly with the Oxford vaccine, a delay actually might be a good thing in terms of immune response. Mm. The Pfizer is a is a bit more of a gamble, but, mm. you know, the best minds in the country in immunology think it offers about 90% protection, protection from the second week on. Mm. How long that lasts, we don't really know, but we think it should last 12 weeks. Mm. And more importantly, that not giving them their second dose allows us to offer far more people protection yeah. in the short term. And it's in the short term that we all face the risks from this second or third wave, whatever you call it. But it, it's not looking great out there at the moment. Right. And actually, once you explain that, um, most people are, are happy. The problem is you don't have the time to explain that um, when you're running a busy vaccination clinic. So it's about getting the information out to them early. Yeah. That was, it was so great to hear his perspective and um, really useful tips for so many people who would be working on teams to do this. Um, one thing that really hit me was just how, what it must feel like emotionally to be giving the vaccine. I mean, I get emotional thinking about the incredible scientific effort and just like force of, you know, scientists across the world working together on this a huge advance in technology and getting the vaccine out so quickly. Um, and so it must be really incredible to be actually giving the vaccine. And like, it must be really moving to see patients different reactions. And as he said, particularly in a self-selected group, like these are the people who are really, really keen, want protection, feel at risk. Um, yeah. So that must just be really incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing we didn't uh, include it in, in the clip there, but I, I was talking to Mark about having to sort of puncture that a little bit when by saying actually you can't go and like hug your <laughs> your grandchildren now uh you know you, do, you don't get immediate immunity and actually the, the advice is still to you know to maintain all of the the, the rules and uh mm -hmm. guidance and mm -hmm. that that we've been advised to for for so long now so uh anyway but yes i agree it will be lovely to, to see people's um reactions i think it is important to mention that though isn't it i think there is some uh some 
idea among certainly my parents who aren't in this phase of the priority list, but will be in the next one about, um, you know, suddenly we'll all we'll be able to hang out immediately and, and things will, will go back to normal. And, and there is maybe that bit of education around actually, no, you know, not, not just yet. Mm. When is the question, isn't it? I don't know how we're going to, it'd be really interesting to see how, mm. if and how we move towards that in the next few months. Yeah. And I, I've been having similar thoughts, particularly with the new variant, which is more contagious, and the possibility of future variants potentially not being covered by the vaccines that we've done this Herculean scientific effort mm. to produce in this crazy short amount of time. And um, it made me feel really depressed thinking about that. You know, like, like number one, how many people are not going to be covered who just won't be reached? people who are who will continue to be vulnerable countries that will continue to not get enough access to the vaccine and mm. um how really really long it's going to take before you know air travel and international travel and other things actually resumes to th- to the level it was before not that that was necessarily a good thing i mean think about the carbon footprint and everything but you know just the life as we had known it is yeah. still maybe farther yeah. than we want to believe you, are you saying you want to escape new zealand is that, is that, is that it? no no, <laughs> no not no, for my part but there. i want my yeah. family to be able to yeah, come here sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean there's so many questions aren't there and and well about that vaccine escape which um is, is something actually we asked our next uh interviewee so maybe we could go and go on to that now um there's so many questions about the vaccine and and I suppose you have a big question that, that Mark mentioned there is about extending the interval between vaccines mm. and the controversy that that's caused and maybe some of the the uncertainty and, and maybe potentially loss of trust amongst some people that you know, changing the goalposts mm. has made. So um, so we were fortunate enough to, to well, it wasn't us that spoke to, to Andrew Pollard, but one of the BMJ reporters, Elizabeth Mahes, has spoken to him, done an interview with him, and uh, we managed to squeezing some of our own questions from from deep breath in and some some GPs uh, to Andrew Pollard, who is the director of the Oxford Vaccine Group. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And let's go back to that interview where Elizabeth Mahes interviews Andrew Pollard. (laughs) 
Uh, well, my name is um, Professor Andrew Pollard, and I'm director of the Oxford Vaccine Group. I'm a paediatrician here in Oxford, specialising in infectious diseases. So the, the two-dose strategy for our vaccine um, is actually a change. We originally planned a one-dose strategy, but we had a subgroup where we gave two doses. And we found in that group, we ended up with much better immune responses. Um, so higher levels of these neutralizing antibodies, which uh, are able to stop the, the virus in its tracks. And so we, with the, uh, the data, as it emerged, as we went through the trials, uh, we went back to the regulators and agreed that we'd move to a two-dose strategy uh, with the idea that uh, you hopefully could get some protection from the first dose, but the second dose would give better protection, but perhaps also more sustained protection. And so that's the strategy that we've had um, going forwards. As a result of that switch in strategy, uh, we had to then manufacture enough doses to give the second dose. And that inevitably led to a delay in having the second dose available. And that's given this really interesting phenomenon in our trial, which wasn't intended at the beginning, where we um, have some people who are vaccinated at a month after the first dose, but some people, because they'd been vaccinated before the manufacturing happened, actually had to wait almost three months before they got their second dose. And so we've got this a spectrum of people between four and 12 weeks who are vaccinated. And so the regulator has approved that interval because there's so much data uh, that, that they have over those different intervals. And absolutely fascinatingly, and perhaps predictably, uh, those who have a longer interval actually make much better immune responses after the second dose. And we see that actually with other vaccines, the cervical cancer vaccine that we give to girls. If you uh, give a six or a 12 month interval between the two doses, you get a better response if you do a one month interval. And many of the baby vaccines, the same is, is, is true as well. And so why, why is that? How does that work? It's, it's almost certainly because the immune response matures after you give a first dose. And, and if you give it long enough to mature, you get a, a very good memory booster response with the second dose. If you give the second dose too early, um, the immune response have, hasn't matured fully. There's a bit of negative feedback, so it doesn't overshoot the mark and you get a much smaller response to the second dose. Brilliant. Yeah, I was looking at the data yesterday and I saw that uh, quite a lot of people were given it between nine and 12 weeks um, in the UK study, and that seemed to have a higher efficacy, so. We don't have enough data to have certainty about that at the moment. There's quite a wide confidence intervals, but um, I think it almost certainly will. How would you explain that to a patient? Well, I, what I would say to the patients is that having uh, two doses is the way that the program is designed. And having a longer gap actually means there's better immunity after the second dose. So it's not um, that it's worse to have a longer gap. After the second dose, it's actually better. And we think that will also give more sustained protection, which could be very important given that this virus may still be around at the other end of this year rather than at this end of this year. Secondly, that there is protection between the two doses. So from a few weeks after the first dose, there's protection. And the evidence we have at the moment is that that lasts up until the second dose. And this has been talked about a lot at the moment, but how much would the virus need to mutate to make the vaccine ineffective? Well, the, the vaccines uh, that, that are currently uh, in late stage development or are authorised for use, um, use a large part of this spike protein. It's a very big protein. 
And so the immune responses are against lots of different bits of that protein. And so that means that to completely escape, um, the virus has to mutate quite a lot. And so that may give some advantages um, against um, escape happening in the short term, certainly. And the way that escape happens, if there's mutants arise that escape from the, the, the vaccine, is when there is a lot of pressure on the virus to change. At this moment, hardly anyone in the world has been vaccinated. And so, and actually hardly anyone in the world has had disease, even though it feels like it's been a huge impact. Most people have not had infection yet. And so the virus is not under huge immune selection. It, it is making new variants, and we're seeing this all the time, but largely that is driven by a new variant which happens to be fitter, perhaps like the one in the southeast of England that arose in December. It transmits better, and so it's taken over the previous variant because it's just better at doing its job. In the future, when lots of people have had disease or have been vaccinated, the virus is going to come under a lot of pressure. And some viruses, when that happens, just can't um, compete against that immunity. And we see that with viruses like measles, where we, if you vaccinate most people, we don't have measles outbreaks because the virus um, is not able to mutate to an extent that allows it to survive in the face of human immunity. With this coronavirus, we don't know the answer to that question yet. And that's why surveillance is going to be critical in the year ahead to make sure that we're not um, in a position where at the point of population immunity, that the virus escapes. And if it does, we need to know that so that we can redesign vaccines at that time. So that was quite reassuring. Did that, did that help with your depression, uh, Jenny? I felt uh, super confident that this, this vaccine will will be effective, at least in the, in the near term. That was very helpful. I mean, and I should be clear, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say my feelings about the current COVID vaccine are depression at all. It's more really just tremendous relief and joy, but um, concern. Um, but that made me feel a lot better. Um, and it makes total sense, you know, that when actually a more significant percentage of the population is vaccinated, that there would be more pressure on the virus to mutate in order to continue infecting its hosts. And I really liked the analogy that he gave with the measles vaccine. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, so no, I, I did find that reassuring. Um, at the same time, like thinking about getting to a point where we've gone through a whole, you know, global effort to vaccinate people only to then have to go through it again is, I mean, that's really not a pleasant thought, but also I don't know if that's likely. Yeah, well, I have no idea. I, I've always assumed that there probably will be some form of ongoing revaccination, but maybe that's just I'm, I'm a pessimist. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Uh, Navjot, do you know any more than that from, uh, well, from the BMJ sort of insider knowledge? <laughs> No, <laughs> it's a short answer to that. Um, but I mean, in the short term, just to shift it to something that I, I do have a question about is um, the, this whole thing about the delay in a, in a second dose, which I mean, for the Oxford vaccine, yes, you think, you know, there, there is a clear kind of rationale and at least some data in support of that. But I think, you know, for GPs or anyone who and patients for anyone who's trying to do informed consent for these vaccines I do think just picking up on Mark's point in his first interview that um, conveying any kind of 
certainty about um, a delayed second dose, particularly for the Pfizer vaccine, I think that's quite challenging to do. Um, And I mean, I think in other parts of the journal, we have called for more transparency about the data that's being used to underpin some of these um, decisions. We know that, you know, we're we're trusting these, you know, amazing minds who are all um, at work, you know, the JCVI and and, um, everyone else who's um, advising us on this. But I I think being able to see that data or any data that they might have access to that we don't, Mm. I think that's so important. Yeah, I I liked at the beginning of that interview that the openness about, you know, this isn't what we intended to do, but this, you know, this is what happened. And, you know, I think that's always, to me, that's always very reassuring to hear that. that, that. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I, I think that that enhances mm. trust. It doesn't it doesn't take away from it if people sort of put their hands up and tell you. I mean, that's a lesson, I suppose, for, for anyone in the game yeah. of healthcare is that, you know, it's, it's always better to err on the side of that. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. The strength of a... Uh, open apology <laughs> you know we, we see that with patients don't we it's always it, it, it's nerve-wracking thing to do but uh, generally goes goes well um well i was just gonna say you know yeah. trust is so important with this vaccine in so many ways and i really appreciated elizabeth asking dr pollard about you know how you how would you explain this delay or longer gap to a patient. Um, And then thinking about, you know, um, Mark's interview about, you know, how they were trying to move people through and get as many people Mm. vaccinated as possible. And how much room do you really have for a conversation about, you know, this is actually what the data shows. This delay is going to be fine, despite what you've heard or thought you knew before. Um, And to try to give that feeling of trust and transparency I think must be really hard mm-hmm. uh, so trust I guess has been a theme over and over again in, in this podcast hasn't it and reminds me of uh, one of our uh, guests that we've had on before who I think we were we were sort of looking back over the year I think our favorite guest our best the best interview that or the most memorable interview for me at least was with our next interviewee Julia Marcus and and trust was a theme there wasn't it Jenny Yeah, so it was so nice to reconnect with Julia, um, just to pick her brain about her research on the rollout of PrEP for HIV and to see whether she could use her work and understanding of our efforts to fight that infection with COVID and and the technology we've now developed here in the vaccine. So let's have a listen. I am Julia Marcus. I'm an epidemiologist and associate professor at Harvard Medical School. My focus as an HIV researcher is on the implementation of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP for Mm -hmm. HIV. So PrEP is almost 100% effective in preventing acquisition of HIV in people who are exposed. And um, and then we also have antiretroviral <clears throat> therapies for treatment that can 100% reduce the risk of transmission to others. They really eliminate the risk. And so between those two things, you would think we'd have just ended the HIV epidemic at this point. PrEP has been around for years. Treatment as prevention has been around for years. But, yeah. you know, despite... Uh, 
despite these highly effective interventions, we still see um, a, a large number of new HIV infections each year. And in the US, we've really plateaued in terms of progress on HIV prevention. So it really raises this question of what's going on here? We have these effective interventions. What, mm. Why can't we just end this? And, and I think it really highlights how important implementation is. When interventions are rolled out in a way that's inequitable, you see what happens with, let's say, PrEP, for example, which is being used least by the people who need it most. And so now we see very little evidence of a population-level impact because of the way it's been implemented. And I wonder if you could kind of give us your thoughts on what the controversy that recently happened at Stanford. So Stanford was one of those hospitals that got a shipment of the COVID vaccine. And out of, I was just reading um, about this, and, and out of 1,300 practicing residents, only seven got the vaccine, whereas a lot of administrators who are older than 65, but who have no patient care roles were prioritized for the vaccine. So um, again, can you, do you see a parallel here with respect to HIV where maybe we're prioritizing the wrong risk factors so that the people who need it most aren't getting it? Yeah, I mean, first I'll say the Stanford example is such a good one because it, it highlights how this is not simple. Um, you know, it's easy to say that we should prioritize based on age alone because it is such a strong risk factor. And I think mm. there's an argument to be made for that. But I think, you know, at Stanford, it, it, you see what happens when you simplify to that extent and when mm. you ignore exposure. Um, you know, that somebody's level of exposure may be so great that it actually outweighs age. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that needs to be considered. Um, the parallel to HIV, so the, the reasons that PrEP is, um, for example, PrEP is, is accessed least by those who need it most are not necessarily because of how it's um, prioritized. So mm -hmm. it's a bit different in that sense. Mm -hmm. Even among people who are prioritized theoretically for PrEP or have indications for PrEP according to CDC criteria, the people who need it most are not accessing it. And mm -hmm. that is more for structural reasons. Oh. And, and I think that we will see this play out with COVID vaccines and treatments and you know any kind of prevention or treatment strategies. Um, that they, they play out along lines of structural inequities. I mean, like access to healthcare, the ways that structural racism plays out in people's engagement in the healthcare system, um, all of these things. And, and with PrEP, you know, the group that in the U.S. is most in need is young, Black, gay, and bisexual men in mm -hmm. the South. Mm -hmm. um, and they are the ones least likely to be using PrEP. And, and there are so many things that, that affect that, including um, not just structural racism, but also stigma, um, socioeconomic conditions. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there is a lot that, um, there are a lot of barriers. It's multifactorial. Um, and and is, it, is it fair to say that those criteria basically depend on people presenting to the healthcare system in the same way that, you know, um, I'm thinking about not PrEP, but 
traditional ARVs where, you know, preventing mother to child transmission of HIV became very um, popular and important, obviously, but popular because pregnant women were easier in some ways to reach because they needed to attend antenatal care. Um, And these guidelines strike me as requiring someone to come in with a medical problem and already have kind of an established foot in the door. Um, with respect to healthcare services. But if you're a person who is practicing high-risk behaviors but with no incentive to go into your doctor, I, I could or or with really good reasons to avoid the healthcare establishment, I could see how those people would not be reached. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are even more steps. Like let's say you make it into your doctor but your doctor's uncomfortable talking about sex and so they don't mm. do a sexual history with you or they simply just don't think you're at risk of HIV so they don't ask you about your sex partners or sexual orientation. Um, mm-hmm. And those conversations often just don't happen or if they do happen, they may happen in a way that feels judgmental or somebody may anticipate mm. that they're gonna experience stigma because of their sexual practices and so they don't disclose them even if they're asked. I suppose the equivalent would be people who just what COVID deniers, people who continue to engage in kind of high risk behaviors for contracting COVID, being in large group indoor gatherings without wearing masks. I mean, at what point are those people going to be reached by a vaccine effort, if ever? I actually think the parallel, maybe a closer parallel, maybe um, people who are public facing workers who have Mm -hmm. a great deal of risk, Mm -hmm. both through their, their occupation and also potentially through living in a denser household, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but who are, who, who do not have a a, um, link to an institution where they can access Mm. the vaccine, who don't have um, access to healthcare and who may have a lot of valid distrust in the healthcare system and Mm -hmm. maybe skeptical about vaccines. And um, those are the people that I think we really have to work hard to, to reach and, and should have been working hard this whole time, I think, in in Mm -hmm. vaccine development, Mm -hmm. um, to be engaging those communities. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I suppose coming back to, um, a question that I asked earlier, one thing that I'm worried about is kind of wealthy and powerful people who have less risk for, COVID exposure and infection, but who by virtue of their age or other factors are nevertheless at risk of harm from COVID infection. Um, That if these are the people in charge of designing algorithms, leading programs, and making decisions about implementation, I'm worried that we're going to be in some ways prioritizing the wrong groups. Yeah, I mean, I think the Stanford example is is how that played out, right? It wasn't um, it wasn't residents or custodial staff who were making decisions about how to prioritize vaccination. It was, as far as I understand it, it was administrators who ended up being prioritized mm-hmm. by their own mm-hmm. algorithm, mm-hmm. Um, and then were sort of like, "Oh, sorry, it was the algorithm's fault." But it's like, well, who who designed that algorithm? <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I think in general. I'm not, I don't know if there's like, um, 
a perfect, you know, nutshell example from HIV, but I think in general during this pandemic and in, in general in public health, policies are and messaging are not necessarily driven by the communities that they are trying to reach. I mean, this has been really salient, I think, during the pandemic um, in the sense that restriction-based policies, quote, lockdowns, they are quite easy to some extent for people who can comfortably work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who are, you know, continuing to go to work, continuing to be exposed are not the ones who are, are designing those policies and they don't really have a voice. Uh, the best way to lose trust is to have these top-down interventions that don't come from a place of empathy and, and don't recognize the kind of impact that they have on the community you're trying to serve. I think what was so interesting about that interview is that the lessons that we've discussed time and time again, um, you find them being relevant to another aspect of the pandemic. So this idea of, you know, um, making sure that you consider how uh, any policies, how they impact on on everybody, not just the people who are most comfortable and how, you know, how you go about building trust and empathy as well, which, you know, we've definitely talked about in this podcast before and um, you know come up yet again about vaccines yeah navjoy i completely agree when i was talking to julia i mean it's it was such a thought-provoking conversation um but really trying to think about okay what could we be doing better to reach the group she correctly identified as being the most the, the group that most needs it with probably the least access and those are the people who are in these public roles where they're interacting with lots of people at high risk of exposure to COVID, but who either don't have insurance or don't have access to healthcare, who aren't actually like frontline workers who will eventually be prioritized for the vaccine in some way. Um, So I'm thinking about the essential workers who couldn't stay home and work from home, but who were not necessarily in healthcare, um, who were, you know, needing to be at work to sell us our groceries or to, um, you know, do other do other essential tasks. Um, and so, you know, I think the challenge is that is such a broad, diverse, pop- massive population that to even think about community engagement becomes really difficult. So in the U.S., for example, um, a, a major vaccine strategy is to administer vaccines through pharmacies, which are you know, community centers in some way, you know, um, every, every small town has at least a pharmacy. Um, But, but how you organize that with respect to the supply chain and how you make that appealing to people and how that becomes a safe space for them, I think are all really um, important questions that we don't have clear answers to. Um, Just going back to the practice of what I'm seeing on the ground, I suppose, in, in the UK, uh, with this kind of patchwork offering, I suppose, to healthcare workers. And that, that I hadn't heard of that Stanford example, Jenny, but, you know, that sounds kind of familiar in that, you know, you have like 50 doses left over at the end of the day and you just need to use them up. And and so as long as you're in the that category of, of people who's eligible for a vaccine, you know, I don't think people are really considering whether you are of a higher exposure risk because you're in a more of a administrative role or an outpatient role or something versus somebody in, in A&E or a paramedic. But um, 
maybe it's too soon to be thinking that way, but but we do need to start start thinking that way, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, I think if the way that these um, doses at the end of the day get used up is by an email round saying who's free to come and have this, and then you're automatically going to select for the people who are happen to be at a desk and able to do that, and not the people who are on the front line delivering care. And that's the end of today's episode. And as I'm being a school teacher as well today, it's probably a good time to go and uh, find out what's happening with the children downstairs. Um, thank you to the guests today. Uh, that's uh, Mark Porter, Andrew Pollard and Julia Marcus. Uh, and I thought before we go, uh, let's have a think about what next time might be. Um, I've been having some thoughts on what the next episodes might be, but really keen to hear from listeners. If you've got a particular topic uh, that you'd like us to cover, then do email us at practice at bmj.com or reach out on Twitter. I'm not using Twitter at the moment, but uh, I know you, you, you guys are. Uh, you can use the hashtag deep breath in and uh, do let us know. And see you next time, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. And uh, Joyce, see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Thanks. Bye, Tom. Okay, and we'll see you uh, again soon. T- take care.